Welcome back to The Sizzle. We're honored to have a remarkable guest with us, Ms. Jamie Dunham, who serves as the Chief Equity and Inclusion Officers at Kitt Public Schools in Washington, D.C. Jamie is not only a seasoned educational leader, but also a passionate advocate for diversity, equity, and inclusion. In her current role, Jamie leads Kip's DC Comprehensive Strategy in the realm of diversity, equity, and inclusion, steering the organization's anti-racism efforts. Prior to taking this critical position, she served as the Deputy Chief Academic Officers for Secondary Schools at Kip DC, where she played a pivotal role in principal training and academic leadership. With over two decades of experience in teaching and school leadership, including the founding of a charter high school, Jamie brings a wealth of knowledge to our conversation, and we couldn't be more excited and more happy to have you here on the show with us. Jamie, how are you this evening? I'm doing great. Thanks for asking. So should, is it Gregory or G. Sizzle? I don't know if I'm the cool way, you know, or what am I doing government names here? What are we doing? <laughs> well, you know, I normally don't say my government name in public, but whichever one is fine with you. Normally for the show, we use G Sizzle. G Sizzle. But, okay. Um, Gregory's fine if that, if whatever comes to your mind first, because I don't He's still in the witness protection program, though. He's still on the run. Well, it's hard to be in witness protection with all these colors on. I'm just going to tell you that right now. It's bright. <laughs> And they will see me coming a mile away, but whichever one you want to use, so whichever one's good for you. All right, I will. I'm a, I'm a, almost always a rule follower. Every once in a while, I push the envelope, so I'll go with G Sizzle. Plus, oh, look, look out, look out! Youthful, <laughs> I say G Sizzle. That feels that feels nice. That's right. Now, now, as the young people say, now you're relevant. Right so now, we can go ahead and have this conversation. So let's start it off with. Jamie, for our listeners, those who don't know, would you share with our listeners what it is and what DEIA is and why it's important currently in our world and as what we go through in our daily life? Yeah, sure. So you may hear DEI, you may hear DEIA, you may hear DEIB. Those letters um, mean similar things uh, with all those different variations, but DEIA literally stands for diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility. If you swap the A out for the B, the B means belonging. Um, all of those letters together are a framework that organizations, corporations, communities can use um, to really create safe, supportive, thriving environments um, and explicitly addressing inequities. And so we're talking about historical inequities, current inequities that are in our society. And so it's a framework to be able to create particularly work environments that are fair for all people, um, eliminating the disparities and outcomes for marginalized groups and communities that have been and continue to be oppressed. So we're talking about um, communities of color. Um, definitely we're talking about um, when we talk about gender, um, women um, who have not been typically allowed into leadership positions, depending on the industry. Um, so that's what that means. It's a framework to continue to be committed to just treating all people with love and respect and with fairness so that they can thrive. It's really important, um, I think, to continue because 
you know, I feel like there was sort of a, of course, celebration when we had, you know, Obama in office, right? Um, but that wasn't the end of the work. The fact that we were able to elect a Black president or the fact that we now have a Black uh, vice president, um, a female, which is great, my soror. Um, but this work is important because we still live in a country where racist and inequitable systems still exist. Um, the culture we live in perpetuates all the mindsets and the behaviors, all the processes, the policies, the legislation that keeps certain groups in positions of power and certain groups at the margins. Um, and that's harmful. Um, and it's and it's systemic. It's been happening uh, since the birth of this country. And so that's why that work is still important. Um, hundreds of years of systems at play that have resulted in outcomes that are so desperate that we can we need to be continue to work on DEIB, DEIA for I think as long as I'll be alive and, and generations to come. So the work that I do specifically focuses on anti-racism um, because there are lots of inequities, um, but race compounds all inequities. And so the work is not limited to race, but we have to name it. We don't like to do that in this country. We don't like to talk about race. Um, or we feel like we talk, some some folks feel like we talk about it too much. Everything is about race, but it is because um, racism compounds all other inequities. And so we know that privilege and power is given to folks that are typical, that are white, um, in terms of gender that are male, in terms of uh, religion that are Christian, in terms of sexuality that are heterosexual. So we have all of those um, identities in which there are groups that are in power or groups that have privilege and groups that have been marginalized or oppressed. Um, so it's complex, it's deep. And so this work is important still because of all of those things. Well, let me ask you this. In light of where we are right now, it is the 60th anniversary of the Civil Rights Act. Yeah. How do you believe that Dr. Martin Luther King's vision and legacy continues to impact society today and currently? Yeah, I um, remember as a fifth grade teacher over 20 years ago, I loved being able to share with my students the audio of Dr. King's speeches. Um, I mean, his voice is just so um, soothing, rousing, and just, it's just, it's spiritual, right? Um, there, and I liked sharing some of the, yes. the, <laughs> the speeches that um, are not as popular, but um, that always brought me a lot of joy, just making sure that I was able to share just um, the, his story and his impact. I think today, you know, 60 years um, later after the Civil Rights Act, his vision and legacy still continues to impact our society. Whenever we see leaders standing up with love and addressing hate with love, um, when we see um, folks being courageous in the face of challenges, when we see hope um, and inspiration, you know, confronting fear, I think that's when we see his vision and legacy that like still exists because I think he he re really reflected those things. I think, and we forget, he was young as he was leading. He was very young. And so when we see young people stepping up um, and leading, I think that's a reflection of his vision um, and his legacy that still impacts us today. Um, he was a beacon of light. And I think that um, we all are still looking um, for inspiration. And so when we see those folks um, that are that are providing that same type of inspiration today, that's, I, I think, where we see his, his legacy. So when we see people um, actually reaching across differences, 
Um, he was someone that was able to gather groups of people that didn't all have the same faith, that didn't all look alike. Um, so I think his legacy and his visions still exemplify today when we see that kind of leadership um, as well. You know, Jamie, um, I remember when the push for the MLK holiday was going on and um, Dr. King's name was on the tip of everyone's tongue at that point in time. We saw what was going on in Arizona at that point in time when they didn't want to celebrate the day. Can you talk a little bit about, though, now that uh, MLK Day is here, for some people in our community, we think uh, that we have arrived. And it was interesting today, I'm also an educator, and uh, recently today we were talking in my classroom um, as we get near Martin Luther King Day. And it was interesting to see that my students weren't as akin to be um, knowledgeable on exactly what was the day's all about. They looked at it just, it's another day I'm getting out of school. And yeah. so now I'm looking at it from that standpoint, has Martin Luther King Day now become like President's Day? We mm. don't really understand what's going on with President's Day. It's just another day. Can you talk a little bit about the consciousness and what we can do as a people to make sure Martin Luther King's Day does not just become another holiday? Yeah, I think that's a really great question. It makes me also think about, you know, kind of the shift in Black History Month um, as well, where, you know, we are used to certain people being celebrated, but there are a whole list of other folks that never get acknowledged. Um, I think um, it was a hard fought battle to get this holiday. Um, I think that um, we have access to a lot of information, but for some re reason we are not <laughs> learning as much as um, as we all need to. So um, I think, um, and kudos to you for being an educator. Um, I think, um, you know, we can't settle um, for um, the advantages we have been able to garner because there's still so much work to be done. So I think this holiday can be a reminder of, um, what is possible and a reminder of how much more work we still need to do. Um, what I've seen in um, some of the schools I've been connected with is the day being connected to um, not, not a holiday in terms of being able to sleep in and not go to work, but a day that which we serve because that's what King's leadership was about. He was a servant leader. Um, so I think um, being able to connect the holiday, the day to how we need to move as a people to continue to, to, to generate change um, will be really important to continue to keep us focused on why the holiday was created in the first place to really honor um, someone who reflects um, a lot of the ideals and principles that we still um, need to hold on to. Could you give us a couple of minutes just on your early history a little bit about what drove you to become an educator? Yeah, thank you for that question. I, as a child, thought I was gonna be a doctor. Um, I knew I was going to be a doctor. I really loved working with kids, so I thought I was going to be a pediatrician. So when I went to school, I chose Howard as one of the as as the school because of the high rate of um, African Americans that go to med school from Howard. And so that was, you know, my plan, and it was solid, and that's what I was going with. <laughs> and once I went to um, college, I realized that I did not love science <laughs> in a way that I wanted to continue. But I didn't know what else would I do because I'd always said I was going to be a doctor. Now, mind you, my mom had been a teacher. I saw her as a kindergarten teacher. 
I saw her go back to school, get her graduate degree, become a counselor, a school counselor. So education ran in my family, but I never considered it. Although I had been a tutor, I'd always worked with young people. I had been a coach. Um, so I should have paid attention to kind of those breadcrumbs. But what happened for me that really um, drove me towards my purpose and my journey and where I am today literally um, was a moment in which God spoke to me. And um, I was, I want to say miserable in every science class at Howard University. And I was walking across campus one day. I had added French as a major because I was like, let me take some classes I like. I got to take these science classes because I'm pre-med, but let me add French because I just like French, always like languages. I've been taking that language for a long time. I was walking across the yard um, and God said, you need to teach. I know that's not how he speaks to everybody, that he has never spoken to me in that plain way since then, has spoken yeah. to me other ways. But that literally is my story. Like God just said, you need to teach. And I was like, okay. Um, I'm sure I don't remember some other things that have happened, like other people who may have, um, you know, kind of subconsciously inspired me. Um, I do remember a high school teacher. Her name is Tony Haygood. She was an English English teacher that introduced me to some great works um, and, and and literature beyond the canon. And um, so she was she was definitely a role model. But yeah, that moment for me was um, spiritual, and that God told me that's what I need to do. Now I also remember going into my first intro to teaching class, my first education class, Professor Hinkson. And I remember sitting in that class and this is dramatic, but it felt to me like, like, you know, in a movie when it's like the heavens part and it's like, oh, and it's like, I was like, this is where I need to be. So I remember that feeling. I'm sure the heavens didn't part and there was no music or whatever, but <laughs> I really felt it in my spirit. I was like, this is exactly where I need to be. And so I'm really grateful for that because I probably would have continued to pursue because I'm, I mean, I'm an achiever. I'm like, I said, this is my goal. I'm going to be a doctor. And I would have been miserable. Um, and I was pursuing it for the wrong. I mean, I thought like, I want to be a doctor because I want to help people, but lots of jobs help people. What I needed to really explore is what brings me energy and also what compliment, what can I do in which my gifts can be leveraged. And so, you know, in my in my bedroom as a child, I had a chalkboard. I love that chalkboard. It should have been clear. Like, again, it should have been clear to me. This is what I needed to do. Um, but that first education class that just sealed the deal. I was like, oh yeah, this is what I need to do. Now I'm not going to make no money, but that's okay. I'm going to be happy. <laughs> and do It's done out of love. It's done out of love. <laughs> yeah. So I, you know, and then, so I finished the Howard and I minor in elementary education and majored in English and French. And then um, I, I loved every minute about teaching. I moved from teaching to, and I've always taught and worked in DC schools and um, always wanted to serve in communities in which um, uh, there were black and brown children um, who were being centered, their identities being centered. And so as a teacher, I loved it. And then I just wanted to have greater impact. So my big dream was, oh, I want to be an elementary school principal. So the entire school can be like this great place. And I want to impact that. And so that was what the big dream was. And beyond that, I was able to do some things even, God had an even greater plan for me. And so um, I'm just really, really grateful for that. I can't imagine doing a job every day and having done it for 20 years and not being passionate about it, not feeling like it's a part of my purpose. Um, so I'm just really grateful that it did happen as early as it did for God to say, this is what you need to do. As we talk about principles, Jamie, and things that we need to hold on to, when we talk about DEI and inclusion, how do these principles all merge together? How do they mend together? How do they meld together to make and make up 
a tapestry. Let's just say a tapestry for education and for young people, but not just young people, but for adults also. How do we bring all these elements together so that DEI is something that is inclusive in our daily walk? Yeah, it, it's um, it's been helpful to think about this work in terms of the the four levels that are going to always be at play in our society. So when you think about levels of racism that we see or levels of any inequity that we see, in order to change, we have to address all four of those levels. So the first level being personal level, so those mindsets and beliefs that folks have as individuals. And then the personal level impacts interpersonal levels. So we're talking about the relationships amongst folks. And then when we think about organizations, we're talking about the institutional level. We talk about institutions themselves, like education, um, government, religion. And then we're then um, the fourth level is that systemic level or that structural level where systems, um, institutions are working across systems. And so in thinking about how to merge all those principles, I think about how we address each of those levels with the work that we do. As an example, um, we need to learn together some new knowledge, new concepts on the personal level and doing that self-work. And in doing that, then apply that to how we relate to other people, that interpersonal level, and then use that to figure out what policies need to change within our institutions and then figure out across those institutions, you know, education and healthcare, how can they both, um, those institutions both work together to be able to garner greater outcomes um, for particular groups of people. So how can education impact maternal health care. Right now, we, we know that Black women um, still continue to suffer in terms of um, maternal health care, mm -hmm. um, the number of Black women that still die in childbirth. And so we think about those, um, all of those levels. Um, one of the, I think the guiding principle across all of those levels is how do we show up in love? I mean, that's really what this work is about, is about love, because at the root of everything that we do, we're talking about this is human work. And so human work, humanity is all rooted in love. Um, again, Dr. King, that's what he was about. Um, he took a lot of heat for being too passive. Um, but I think um, actually love is a powerful weapon. And so when we think about what would we want for our own children, what would we want for our own communities, if we use that lens to be able to continue to work at these really complex issues, um, to me, that's like bringing all of those concepts around diversity, equity, inclusion, um, accessibility, or belonging all together. Um, yeah, but it's, it's complex. It's, it's an ongoing um, journey. So there's not a, a place in which we finally arrive, I think. Um, there's not a checklist. So that's what makes it um, not only complex, but very messy. Um, this is very messy work. Um, there are lots of great frameworks and tools, but at the end of the day, it's how are we touching each other's hearts? How are we really leaning into humanity? You know, um, Jamie, I'm looking at the overall construct of the Black experience now um, in the United States. And I think a lot of media has the ability now to shape how we see ourselves. Mm -hmm. um, can you talk a little bit about how can we reshape our own viewpoint of ourselves? Because I think a lot of times now we are separate. Um, we have our youth and we have our um, older generation and we see a large chasm there. And we know most of the time when movements are uh, gain energy, they gain energy from our youth. You talked about how young Dr. King is. What can we do about connecting those who are disconnected? Now, we know a lot of 
our young black people, especially those who are in college, still get connected with the black experience because they're being taught. But what about the rest of our youth out here that might not have that college experience who live that day-to-day -day black experience that we're trying to shape and mold? How do we, as a group, get those people on board? Because I think um, there's just a big disconnect between the two. Mm -hmm. And now we see that a, a violence is almost being um, shown to them that this is the way that you need to move forward. And we see a lot of that with the young people's music and everything else like that. Can you talk a little bit about how that change can occur? Yeah. I mean, that's a tough one. I think um, where that comes from, or where that challenge comes from is that in this country, black people have always been presented as a monolith. There's only yeah. one way, there's only one way to be black or, you know, you have the, the that one profile of the black actor that's going to get the role, you know, um, uh -huh. this is what it means to be black. This is so I think, you know, and I went to um, an HBCU shout out to Howard University. My husband, and I went to Howard. Um, we have a son there, uh, a freshman there at Howard. So some of the criticism I know I got or questions even from our, my own community was, why are you going to an HBCU and everybody's the same? Right. And there's so much diversity. Um, in terms of my experience at HBCU, in terms of diverse perspectives, you know, Black folks from all over the world um, coming together, Black folks that have different interests, right? And so I think that's one problem is that we present um, who, what Blackness is and the Black experience in just one way. And so I think yeah. we have to reshape our mindsets about um, what diversity means within the same racial group. Um, I think at the root of what motivates anybody, a young person, older person, is we all want to feel seen. We want to all feel validated. We all want to feel like we have purpose. And so if we're able to, and that's not going to happen the same way for everybody. But I think that if we, you know, we can sometimes, you know, one generation versus another generation, well, older generation saying young folks, you know, aren't working hard enough and young folks saying you know, older folks, y'all don't listen enough. And so I think I, I like this expression of just like leading with your heart. I think if we lead with our hearts and we're open to hearing, even if we don't agree, <laughs> open to hearing what others have to say, we can at least approach, um, you know, collaboration in a way that is more empathetic, more compassionate. So we're moved to do something together. But, it, you know, I think it starts with um, really believing that every person has value um, you know, I'm a, I'm a Christian, so my faith, you know, compels me to to believe that, you know, God doesn't make mistakes. And so anybody who is here, they are here for a purpose, whether I see it or not. I need to know that and believe that um, and really be able to, um, you know, show some of those, again, some of the things that we saw Dr. King, he showed perseverance and patience and some of those things we need to, you know, continue to show to one another. We have to be patient with our young folks as they figure it out because we had to figure it out, too. Um, our young folks need to be patient with us because the technology is moving way too fast for any of no, us. Absolutely. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, at the end of the day, I think, um, you know, the black experience in this country is extremely unique. One, because of the origin of which we came here, uh, definitely the amount of trauma, but then the amount of perseverance and power for us to still even be here. Um, the cre creativity um, it has taken for us to, you know, dig our heels in and not um, take anything less than um, being seen as real contributors 
um, to this society, to this country, whether other folks believe it or not, we know it is true. You know, um, Jamie, from my standpoint, um, being an educator now, we see that the reading side of it now is not emphasized as much as possible. Mm-hmm. We have so much curriculum now that's video-based. Mm. Uh, we have a lot of curriculum that's video-based. And mm. we see kids not going home with books anymore. They're going home with tablets. And yeah. they don't have the, um, as uh, you might not know me, I'm an avid reader. And uh, Greg will tell you, my on one side of my room in my living room is my library. I have it in the living room, not in the room off by itself, uh, because it's important to me because each one of those inside those covers is a mind that has um, condensed this information for me and it's going to tell me a story um, mm-hmm. of information and I, and I can go back and get it anytime that I want. There's something about reading those words on paper that imprints that. And I think you're right on point. Um, it's not so much of a question, but it's, you know, uh, um, a observation from my point, um, especially when you want your kids to read more, you want them to write. There's such a disconnect because they're not being taught that, especially at an early age. You see a lot of kids, especially in the urban area that I teach to, um, they're struggling to read at a a level that you can comprehend some of the art, some of the works that are out there. And I think what you're talking about is super important because that art of reading um, especially at our level, the thing that we fought for so much be, uh, um, out of slavery, that if you, you know, people were hiding and by, with candlelight in the middle of the night right. trying to learn to read. Mm-hmm. And now we almost see the converse going on. I yeah. mean, you have, you know, um, that they're not, our kids are not being driven to be readers um, all the time. And it's, and, and um, it's, it's sort of sad a little bit because of the things that they're missing out on, I believe they're missing out on. Mm-hmm. Um, if there was a way, that, I, I think that's the genie I would want somehow to rub the lamp and, and, and get that out just to make our kids become better readers. I think that's the most one of the most important things out here because when they go out to communicate um, in the world outside of their own, sometimes they're at a, a disadvantage. Um, you know, they can't uh, write cursive or read cursive now. Um, just, you know, a lot of things like that, it gives them a disadvantages. And I think this is important with you, especially when you talk about reading, uh, you know, reading, well, when I was born, reading was fundamental. Right. And, and um, it's not so, it's not so much now. And um, I see that from that standpoint when you're trying to make them read and, and try just to get them to enjoy reading. Um, yeah. You know, so, yeah. And, and it's hard. I mean, like different you know, certain folks, you know, are really analytical. And so certain parts of the brain, you know, really make them take versus another person who may be more verbal. Um, when I was a principal, one of the things we tried to do to build this culture around reading being cool or reading being fun was, you know, every adult posted, like, this is what I'm reading right now, right? So kids do what they see modeled. And so as adults, whether you're a teacher or not, as a parent, as a community member, as an uncle, as a, you know, if we are reading, um, I think our kids seeing that is super powerful. I am okay with the videos. I think just videos is 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 hard. Like the video that sparks the interest to then mm-hmm. learn more about that topic or learn learn more about that person. And then from the video, then I'm like, ooh, I want to now get this book about this thing, right? Yeah. Um, I think it's just so powerful too, because in reading in that process, you do become a better writer. And how many of our young people 
will be amazing writers, will be amazing um, authors. So I, I got to see during the pandemic, um, my husband um, take this journey. He had been um, someone early on in school that struggled, had dyslexia, um, a speech impediment. Um, I don't think he read a book cover to cover until much like maybe college, uh, till yeah, it's the early part of college. Um, and then saw him take this journey to write his own book, to write his memoir, and that being really inspired by him wanting to tell his story so he can impact other people. He didn't grow up with this dream like, oh, I want to be an author one day, but he saw the power in being able to share his story in a way um, that could insp um, inspire others, especially young people. Um, so seeing that journey, I just, you know, have been able to see, you know, as a teacher, um, as in just an avid reader and, and, and lover of reader of reading myself and then watching my husband, his journey as an author. I mean, I just see how powerful um, books are on every, every angle and, um, and uh, plug, not shameless plug. I mean, a shameless yeah. plug, but his book is called Running Against the Odds by Desmond Dunn. Great memoir. <laughs> um, but yeah. And then, and you know what, like I, I we, we have two children. I was waiting on the day that my son would say, I love books. We're not there yet. He hadn't said it yet. <laughs> My, mine's 32. We haven't seen that one <laughs> But one day he's going to love a book somewhere, though. Yeah. But I, I remember, actually, first grade, he had this Fly Guy was the name of the book. He loved the Fly Guy books, right? So um, my daughter, on the other hand, like, reads, 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 reads. She's a great writer. And so every everybody's different, right? Um, and at the end of the day, though, if we all understand the value of reading, and especially, I think, with our Black youth, because there's been a culture of, like, Reading is, that's not cool. Having books isn't cool. Being studious isn't cool. That that narrative we know is not true. So we need to dispel it and continue to dispel it. I mean, I wouldn't be at the heart of who I am and I'm a teacher. So, I mean, the one thing I would, I think we need to talk more about is the power of reading. And it is so crushing <laughs> what is happening in certain states with yes. books being banned. And, oh, it, it, I feel in my core just the angst around around that um i mean we know how powerful reading is because mm -hmm. of the fact that folks were killed our people were killed if they knew how to read that's how powerful mm -hmm. it is mm -hmm. and so the fact that we are still in this place where <laughs> we are violently excluding certain groups from engaging in the works of authors um, who are courageous enough to talk about some of the things that folks don't want to talk about. When you think about like, we all had those experiences of a book that just changed our lives or that op opened us up to a whole nother way of thinking. Like I cannot um, express just how important it is for us to continue to fight so that we have not just freedom of speech, but that we um, absolutely um, rebel against any legislator <laughs> who wants to ban um, the works of uh, the creative folks that are trying to pour into this society in a way that's going to impact our young people to be able to change um, this country for the better, this world for the better. So it just burns me up <laughs> that we are in this place. Um, and I think that, you know, it, our, our educators, our, our 
political leaders um, or activists have to continue that fight as much as we have to fight still for, you know, the, the political freedom too, in terms of the, uh, the right to vote and um, ensuring that that is not in jeopardy um, because it's under attack. Um, oh, yes, it is. So I know we, we, didn't, we could go on and on about, about some of those topics too, but just from the education front, again, all my time has been in education uh, and at the core of how I approach most things, it's from that teacher lens. I still, that was my favorite job to have being a teacher. Um, and so just the power of books, um, the power of books. Yeah, we cannot, we cannot um, stop fighting because uh, what, what I'm seeing right now happening in, in certain states is, it's appalling and it's scary. Since we're talking right now, and, and we just talked about the young people, they use technology. They use technology in a way that we never knew how to use technology. I remember when I first went to Knoxville College, we had one Apple computer in our computer lab. And I was just saying <laughs> <laughs> that that was, and it was in the writing lab, and you had one Apple computer versus now every child has a computer or some type of high level processing in their pocket yeah, or on their wrist, in their hand. How do you now use DEI with the, the technology that's around you to help make it inclusive for all those who are tech literate and maybe those who are tech illiterate? Yeah, I, <laughs> I'm laughing to myself because uh, the team that I work with, um, one of the requirements, I'm like, I need a young person on this team. <laughs> I know my strengths. And so I need a young person on this team. But uh, but yeah, I think in order to make sure folks are included, I mean, one, technology can help with that. I know um, during the pandemic, <clears throat> we were able to do a lot of work um, virtually. We brought in some amazing thought leaders in this space. Uh, Dr. Ibram X. Kendi, who wrote you know, so much about anti-racism. Um, we were able to bring in um, Jason Reynolds, the um, it's amazing um, author of um, books that center um, the identities of our, of our Black youth. And so, you know, we may not have been able to fly those folks in during another time, but we were able to Zoom them in and mm -hmm. um, they were able to speak to and, and, and share um, with a group of a thousand educators, um, all with just you know, a click into the link. And so I think technology, the right platforms, um, young people being patient with us learning, us being open enough and vulnerable enough to ask questions like, how do I do this? What's mm -hmm. another way? So I think, you know, we all have a, each generation has a responsibility so, so that we can continue to grow together. Um, and I think technology can be used as a tool to continue to um, promote the agenda in which we know is important around diversity, equity, and inclusion. It's hard though keeping up with technology. I'm tell you. Yeah, it's um, it's one of these things that technology is moving faster than we can learn it, Absolutely. and uh, we see with the AI boom now. This and, and we're in the infancy of this. Yeah. And uh, as a person who has a little bit of gray hair on his beard, now I have to try to stay <laughs> on top of this a little bit, and yeah. it's a little bit difficult. Um, Jamie, do you think that um? This new generation that we have coming along now, it, it, this is 
I'm always amazed with the YouTube shorts. You know, it's like now we we, we have a one minute, 59 seconds of time that we can allot for each message to get out. And it's like the messages are becoming almost like billboards now. Beforehand, we had opportunity, especially like this, that we could have um, time so we can just communicate with each other in an open format and people can come in like voyeurs and listen to what's going on. And we think that we can push these uh, things that need to be said out in a longer format. And it seems like it's just the opposite. Can you talk a little bit about just um, messaging? How can we, um, especially through your group, how are you outreaching to message to um, this generation now who they say, you know, they always want to label, you know, you have ADD and this, that, and other, so forth and so forth, which I don't believe that. I just believe there's so much information coming to these young people now. Uh, we never had that before. Beforehand, you know, we had a phone at home. We had to be at home and trying to figure out how to answer an answer machine. Um, right. and, and I still can now, I still have messages on my answer machine right now. Can we talk a little bit about just messaging from your standpoint, how you guys um, attack that a little bit? So, Jay, you still have a landline in your house. You know, I do. <laughs> I have a I have a rotary phone. I'm still trying to dial. I get stuck on nine. Just keep going around and around and around. <laughs> Some things we just don't want to let go of. I get it. Um, no. So actually, one of the uh, the first letter in DEI, right? Diversity. So I think yeah. in terms of messaging, we have to have diverse modes for messaging um, and thinking about the audience we want to message to. We have to include those folks in how we do it. I think that's one of the things um, we've learned in history is that, you know, a certain group says there's a problem. And so they solve the problem for everybody else. Yes. You solve their own problems if you create the conditions for them to do that. And so as we think about, you know, how can we reach young people? I need to ask young people to help me figure out how to reach the group that they are a part of. Um, and so I think um, the messaging has to be diverse. The messaging has to include those um, who are part of the intended audience. Um, and then you're right. I think those little shorts and I, I like them sometimes for a little quick pick me ups. Um, but there's something about, you know, going deep um, around an area that is um, that is enriching. And I think the little sprinkles of those little shorts allows you to have some breath. And so I think about, you know, there's um, power and value in both of those methods. One, um, you know, all shorts or only kind of the long versions, I think um, provide some limitations and allow us to be like maybe a little bit more narrow in terms of our perspectives. Mm-hmm. You know, I am one of those ones, like I had a Kindle and I know there are audio books, but I love to just turn a page in a book, right? And so, but there are times when like somebody sends me something electronically, I need to like click, click through that. And so I think, yeah, just the diversity and how we message, we may have a preference or a style, but we can't, um, I think limit ourselves uh, to just one way. And like you said, it's moving so fast. As soon as we learn one way, there's a a new way that's going to come about (laughs) um, as well. So um, yeah, I think keeping, and as leaders as well, you know, we can't keep people around us that are just like us. We have to have some diverse perspectives, folks from different experiences that are part um, of the team that we're a part of or leveraging in order to make change. And I think, I think Dr. King back, back, back to kind of where we started, Dr. King did that um, well. He had 
um, not just clergy around him. He had entertainers around him. He mm -hmm. had other, um, not just, um, you know, folks uh, from the South. He had he had folks from all over the country, all over the world um, that he collaborated with and uh, that he connected with. And so I think um, that's an example of, of kind of our approach as well to continuing to message to a broad audience. Jenny, as we move through this new year, what advice would you give to our audience in terms of expanding their knowledge base and their commitment to DEI and the DEI principles? Mm -hmm. I think um, what we tend to do sometimes when we feel harmed or oppressed or feel like things aren't right, we want to point the finger at other folks. In this work, um, I have found that the place to always start is the self-work. Um, and the self-work starts with really understanding not just identity, but like the history, um, the historical context behind the identities in which you share. One of the things I'm working on right now, um, I've always uh, known I was Black, identified as a Black woman, um, and have felt very much a part of that culture. However, I'm working on also owning my native culture as well. My family's Chickasaw. Um, never felt like I was native enough to actually say it out loud. Like, mm -hmm. yeah, I'm, I'm I'm actually on the tribal role for Chickasaw in Oklahoma. That's where I'm wow. from. So that's the self-work. So as much as I feel empowered about being a Black woman, the self-work I need to do is around, you know, disrupting native erasure because that's real in this country. So no none of us are ex too expert enough to not do the self-work. So that's that's my one um, push for anyone who's interested in this work. Um, the other thing I'd say is it's it's the long game. We're not going to change things overnight. Some things may change overnight, click of a button, but lots of things that are that are going to be that are, need to be sustainable are not going to change overnight. Um, we're not going to do it alone. And so um, understanding that we do this work in community, which is hard and complex, um, but yeah, if you're going to do this work, you've got to do it in communities, not not in an office by yourself somewhere. Um, and then also, I mean, I've just always been a um, someone who wanted to lead um, under the guidance of the principles around servant leadership, which to me is all rooted in love. So I think this work is about love. And so as much as we can continue to, we need to balance head and heart in doing the work. Um, but um, starting with, you know, coming from at the core, uh, this work is about love. You know, I'm talking about love a little bit. Um, we, I come from a time where love was, you know, I'm an older person. I come back <laughs> in the, you, you would hear a lot of songs about love. And I even um, also play a lot of events and play a lot of um, music um, out here. We see there are songs out now that are about love, but we don't hear so much songs about self-love, you know? Okay. And um I'm interested just from you. I understand I, love is your central theme. I can see it in your face. I can feel it in your heart. And I know this is something that's so important to you. And this is why you're taking the time out. And I appreciate you coming on because we have opportunity to expand your base um, with our base. And we just appreciate you, um, the heart that you have for doing what you're doing. Can you talk a little bit about the communication of love? How does that look? Um, what are the things that we need to be saying to people? Is it, is it more or less, I just love you or we love each other collectively together? Because I believe the movement that we saw back during Dr. King's time 
there was a particular um, goal that they had set there. And I think that was the changing of Black America from being a subservient society to a powerful society. And and I and I see that today in this in your work you're talking about let's talk about self-empowerment. Can you talk a little bit about that? Just how do we as a group out here show people love, giving them the opportunity to be self-empowered? Yeah, the this I don't think it's possible to show love to anyone else unless you know how to show it to yourself first. Mm-hmm. I think the way I believe the way that you learn how to love yourself is by really understanding how God loves us. Okay. So in expressing that, I think that's the beautiful part of creation. That's the beautiful part of what God did to create this universe is that someone can express love through a beautiful um, piece of artwork using canvas and, and, and paint. Someone else can express love by playing the cello, cello beautifully, right? Um, someone like me who I can maybe draw like a stick figures and, uh, (laughs) 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 musically, uh, I'm a little challenged there too. The way that I may show love could be just listening and being present, um, to, you know, my teenage children, uh, or it could mean, um, you know, like what you do, Jay, uh, being in a classroom day in and day out with young people, yeah. being prepared for them, taking the profession of teaching so seriously that you know that these kids' lives um, depend on on you being ready and prepared for them. So I think the way that we show love is also rooted in our purpose. So we don't have to do it the way someone else does it. Um, I know there are songs that like just bring people to tears. Like it's mm-hmm. so filled with love, right? Um that also can be done through, you know, the healing touches of a nurse um, who is caring for a cancer patient um, that's dealing with with all that goes into that journey. So I think the way that we express love has to be authentic. And the way that it's authentic is in us really knowing our purpose and why God created us in the first place, because that's the root of it. Why yeah, God that's- for love. Yeah. yeah, that's the whole thing about it, too. It's just like, it's the golden rule. I mean, you know, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And I think in our society, as as you're talking about now, that's the biggest showing of love right there is to show people, say, hey, I love you enough. That I want to treat you like I would treat myself. Yeah. And I think as, as a group, if we can get that message out, like you're doing right now, saying, hey, that self-love is so important that we can see this movement keep moving forward. You know, it's it's just a... Um, a great thing that you're doing. I just want to say that because you don't hear a lot of people coming out with a plan on how, you know, it's like there needs to be change, but you don't necessarily see somebody who says, well, this is how we can do that. We have, we have a uh, four steps that we need to follow. These are the things that we need to do. And this is how you can implement it in the community. So kudos to you for doing this um, because this is a big, big deal. Don't think anything that you do is small. It is not God has placed you in this place because he needs you there in this place and time. So always remember that, especially when things get tough. Thank you. I appreciate that, Jay. And you continue to just pour into those young people in your classroom every day. I really, really want to celebrate what you're doing every day as well. Jamie, we'd like to thank you for coming on to the show and sharing with our listeners and giving those who listen an insight of what DEI is and what you do. And since you are our esteemed guest, we will give you the last word that you can share with all of our listeners. 
Thank you. Uh, so much gratitude for just what you all do and for this platform. Thank you to listeners out there. Continue to be committed to just being um, servant leaders in our communities, leading with love and really staying inspired um, to do the really hard work that others before us did, others before us like Dr. Martin Luther King. So I'm really um, just energized by the fact that we get to celebrate him um, in a few days um, on MLK Day. So thank you.